4: Trump's threat to terminate the Constitution is so bad that now even he has attacked it. Quote, the fake news is actually trying to convince the American people that I said I wanted to terminate the Constitution. He posted on his truth social media platform. This was two days after he advocated, quote, for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution, and posted that on his truth social media platform. Trump has now proceeded to again call for the overthrow of the government of the United States, quoting, steps must be immediately taken to right the wrong. An election should go to the rightful winner or at minimum be redone. There should be no time limit for change. Once again, a guy with a political base and millions of cultists with guns can insist that who is president should be decided not by the Constitution, not by an election, not by the Electoral College, not by the Supreme Court even, but by him. And he is still at large rather than being detained under 18 U.S.C. Chapter 115, Section 2385, quote, whoever knowingly or willfully advocates, abets, advises or teaches the duty, necessity, desirability or propriety of overthrowing or destroying the government of the United States by force or violence shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Most relevant yesterday was not Trump's ludicrous denials, which are going to believe me on truth social or me on truth social. And I never said I wanted to terminate the Constitution. I only said I wanted to terminate articles of the Constitution. Most relevant yesterday was the idea that maybe just maybe the idea that they could finish Trump off on this subject if they all stand up to him, or at least that every last Republican is going to be asked about this perfect either-or that Trump has created, him or the Constitution, maybe that is just beginning to dawn on them. There are still ninnies and always will be who can actually say what Roger Marshall, the senator from Kansas, who believes 9-11 is pronounced 911. Said yesterday, quoting Marshall, I don't know if that's being taken out of context or where it came from, as if it wasn't a direct quote. And then after he said that, he ran away from reporters. On the other hand, Senator Mikowski of Alaska said, suggesting the termination of the Constitution is not only a betrayal of our oath of office, it's an affront to our republic. Close, though. No, Senator. It is also a betrayal of our republic. Senator Rounds of North Dakota said anyone who desires to lead our country must commit to protecting the Constitution. They should not threaten to terminate it, which in this era of jellyfish as Republican senators constitutes borderline defiance. Swearing to uphold the Constitution, quote, is the principle, the bedrock of our country. I couldn't disagree more, said Senator Thune of South Dakota. But when asked if that disqualified Trump, he would still go no further out there. If you're one of these people who's interested in running this year, this is certainly an opportunity that would create some contrast. Sadly, the far right is willing only to criticize Trump if, A, they don't have to mention his name, or B, they can make it look like they're criticizing him on political strategy, not, you know, the whole debate between constitutional government and a dictatorship. The right wing troll Ben Shapiro criticized Trump not because he endorsed a coup and then came back to clarify it and endorsed a new coup, but because, quote, it allowed the Democrats and the media to avoid the Twitter file story entirely by redirecting to Trump's spoken authoritarianism. In other words, the fact that there is no Twitter file story indirectly becomes Trump's fault. This is a lie. This is dereliction of duty by any U.S. citizen, even Ben Shapiro. But hell, if it undermines Trump, I will hold my nose and take it. But what is the most useful for again scrambling the creature the New York Post called Trumpy-dumpty not a month ago at the midterms is not the new quotes from Republicans, but the old ones. Aaron Fritschner, the chief of staff to Congressman Don Bayer, and Media Matters for America did the heavy lifting on these, and they were worth the effort. October 18th of this year, Representative Lauren Boebert, quote, The Democrat Party sees the Constitution as a roadblock rather than a road map. Uh, no, that's Trump. October 20th, Representative Elise Stefanik, I will always stand up for our Constitution. Don't, don't. Don't tell Trump. Undated Harmeet Dillon, the MAGA trying to become Republican National Committee chair. The Democrats would just tear up the Constitution. No, no, that that, that's Trump, too. Undated Sean Hannity. Democrats are now ready to shred the Constitution. No, that that that's your boy, Trump. Undated Pete Hegseth, Fox News. Democrats want to tear up the Constitution, overturn it and rewrite it. No, no, Pete, all three of those things. That's also Trump. And from September 17th of this year, Constitution Day, the anniversary of the official adoption of that Constitution. A series of wonderful quotes Representative John Rose of Tennessee, every day I push back against those who seek to undermine our Constitution, bend it or disregard the parts in which they don't agree. No, that's uh, that's also Trump. Representative Monica de la Cruz of Texas. We have to protect our Constitution at all costs. Without it, we don't have anything. Oh, Monica, MAGA may throw you out for saying that. Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, the left treats the Constitution as an inconvenience in their pursuit of power. No, Byron, that's Trump. Representative Barry Loudermilk of Georgia, the January 5th Congressional Tour Guide. We celebrate one of the most significant documents ever written, the bedrock of our government, the Constitution. Don't tell Trump or those people you took on the tour. Representative Fred Keller of Pennsylvania, our Constitution given to us by our creator and paid for by our veterans. Uh, No, Fred, Trump is your creator, and he paid for it. Representative Randy Weber of Texas, the Constitution, now more than ever, as we witness blatant attempts to circumvent the one document that preserves our individual liberties, we must protect it at all costs. Except criticizing Trump. Representative Carlos Jimenez of Florida. Today, our Constitution and the values we hold dear are under attack. You are correct, sir. Representative Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma. When I took my oath of office, I swore to protect and defend our Constitution. And it is a responsibility I do not take lightly. Yeah, let's see how not lightly you take it, Mark Wayne. And then... THE money quote of all money quotes. I will read it, then tell you who said it. Quote, Now more than ever, that Constitution and the freedoms it protects must be defended and preserved for us and for our children. Yes. Kevin McCarthy, Speaker Presumptive. Obviously, these quotes are in and of themselves nuggets of gold, and dozens more of them are just sitting there. But more importantly, they are just sitting there in carload lots waiting to be read back to the Republicans who spoke them, along with Trump's constitutional termination quote, and Trump's corrected constitutional termination quote, for weeks and months and, if need be, years to come. There are still a couple of reporters hidden, embedded among the access journalists who have taken over D.C. And for those few, these are how to succeed in the media, political, industrial complex business without really trying. Because remember, Trump never said he wanted to terminate the Constitution, he only said he wanted to terminate all rules, regulations, and articles found in the Constitution. Still ahead the night before his last candidate was to be judged at the polls by the people of Georgia for Herschel Walker's last rally, Donald Trump phoned it in. No, no, literally. He didn't show up. He just phoned it in. Big free agent signings in baseball, including a guy getting an 11-year contract from the Philadelphia Phillies and a no-trade clause. And for 15 years, I have remained silent about somebody in this business who used to live with me. I have put up with metaphorical punches from her and with actual punches from her. This now has to stop. Things I promised not to tell about Katie Turr ahead. That's next. This is Countdown. Still ahead, 441 million dollars on baseball free agents. Yesterday, that's three guys for a total of 14 years. Plus worse persons. And sorry, I've just had enough. When you turn a vasectomy into a photo op for a newscast, all bets are off. Things I promised not to tell. Also ahead. First in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day. I've had two dogs with desperate, life-threatening, devastating heart problems. What do you do? What do you do when they tell you your four-month-old puppy has an enlarged heart and a hole in his heart, but they can operate to save him, but it'll cost $19,000? Do you give up and say, let him die? That is what is facing little Bentley in Santa Rosa, California. He looks like a pug, big ears, cute as a bug. The family turned to Soft Paws Rescue, and they are doing a fundraiser for him on Cuddly. One of my rescue puppies could be saved with surgery. He was. He's now four and a half. The other, Mishu, could not. No surgery could help him. So stories like this always hit home for me. Bentley on Cuddly, or look for him on my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Bentley thanks you. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Atlanta, as the old commercial used to go, did you ever get the feeling some people just stopped trying? The Republicans first insisted everybody should only vote day of, so it'll be raining, probably lightly, at least to start the last day of voting for the Senate from Georgia today. What did Trump do for his man, Herschel Walker? Phoned into a tele last night. Thanks for stopping by. A far-right interviewer asked Trump's not-too-bright spokesperson, Liz Harrington, for the phone number so supporters could join the tele-rally. And Liz Harrington did not know what the phone number was. See you, Hirsch. Dateline Moore County, North Carolina. Darkness continues there after somebody shot up two power substations and blacked out the county. But there is a development Sunday. The sheriff's office said a covid carried and January 6th audience member who had boasted on social media that she knew why the county had been blacked out, that it was over a drag show in local theater and was God's work. Well, the sheriff's office said she had nothing to do with the terrorism. She was just boasting. Now it turns out the woman, Emily Rainey, took a selfie at a Back the Blue rally in October 2020 with the county sheriff. Stay tuned. And Dateline Lincoln Square, New York. ABC News has given Good Morning America third hour co-hosts T.J. Holmes and Amy Robach leaves of absence as it tries to figure out what to do. When your hosts are married to other people, but they are uh, doing their own two shots, as it were. Years ago, I was the sportscaster at a station where this exact thing happened. The anchors thought nobody knew. Everybody knew. When I would come out onto the set during the commercial before the sportscast, it felt like I was the kid brother that one of them had been forced to take along on the date. Here is the upshot. There is no way out. If they break up, they will hate each other. If they don't break up, the divorces will be in the papers every day for months. And worst of all, if they get divorced and they get married to each other, the thrill of cheating will quickly evaporate and soon their conversations will be like the ones on the newscast stage. This is an actual quote about two weeks after the honeymoon. Yes. I promise, when we get home, I will fix the garbage disposal unit. Later came the claim by one of our other news anchors that the new Mrs. Anchor had tried to run over Mr. Anchor in the parking lot. Advice? Fire them both. Or keep the one you really like and fire the other one. Or move them to different jobs in separate buildings. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, now that last winter's lockout has been forgotten by everybody, baseball owners can resume spending on free agents. The New York Mets, having lost Jacob deGrom, gave Cy Young Award winner Justin Verlander two years at $43 million a year, plus a vesting option for a third year for $35 million. This reunites him with Max Scherzer. They pitched together in Detroit a decade ago. On opening day, Verlander and Scherzer will be a combined 78 years old, so it's Max and Justin and pray for no rustin'. The Phillies finally nailed down their deal with shortstop Trey Turner, ex of the Dodgers. And what a deal it carries through the season of 2033. $300 million over 11 years and a no-trade clause. The Dodgers did bring back their longtime centerpiece, Clayton Kershaw. One year, $20 million. $20 million? And you're admitting this publicly? What an embarrassment. Is Kershaw retired I got a bad agent? What kind of fool would do? It's $20 million.
2: Thank
4: you, Nancy Faust. And the New York Yankees signed General Manager Brian Cashman for four years. Seriously? Ryan Cashman inherited a dynasty from executives Gene Michael and Bob Watson in 1998. His own Yankees teams have won one World Series in 25 years and have not been back since. I have said it before and I'll say it again. If you want to convince me that Yankees owner Hal Steinbrenner is actually the son of the late, great, perceptive George Steinbrenner, I'm going to need to see a paternity test. And it goes by quickly. Five years ago, Baker Mayfield won the Heisman Trophy as the best in college football. Four years ago, he was the number one pick in the NFL draft. This year, well, the highest possible QBR number, that's quarterback rating, is 158.3. Baker Mayfield for the Carolina Panthers, 18.2 of 521 different quarterbacks assessed by that cumulative QBR stat since it came into use in 2006. That ranks Baker Mayfield 520th out of 521. The Panthers waived him yesterday. He is 27 years old. Ahead, I'm sorry... When she went ahead and used a vasectomy as a photo op to promote uh, promote her newscast and her husband's, that's, that's when I just snapped. Things I promised not to tell about Katie Turr. Next. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The Bronze. The New York Times. Look, the groomer thing is a paranoid bull from the far right. But the word does characterize a disgusting act. So the original Times obit was uh, problematic. It read, quote, Nick Boletari, groomer of tennis champions, dies at 91. It now reads Nick Boletari, nurturer of tennis champions, dies at 91. Our runner-up, Kanye West. Remember him? Posted on Instagram that he thinks Elon Musk is half Chinese And, quote, they probably made 20 to 30 Elons, and he's the first genetic hybrid that's stuck. Well, let's not forget about Obama. That's not weird enough for you. This was apparently a campaign statement of some sort. He followed that up with, quote, yay 24, let's unify and found out, find out. And that followed it with the clever acronym that he's using in his campaign, l-u-a-f-o for let's unify and find out anybody care enough to get this guy help anybody anybody at all but our winner somebody about whom the answer to that question would be no glenn greenwald former journalist hyperventilating about the story of hunter biden's lap well i mean it clearly turned out to not be about hunter biden's laptop right it was about his lap Quoting Gigi the ongoing attacks on Matt Taibbi from jealous employees of NBC, CNN, the Daily Beast and collapsing Brooklyn based digital outlets is a form of stochastic terrorism that is literally putting him in harm's way and straight up inciting violence against him and his family, CC, FBI. Well, first, no, it isn't. Secondly, Greenwall cited four just explosive tweets. The strongest language used against Taibbi in any of them was, quote, what a sad, disgraceful downfall. After a statement like that, he's way likely to be sent cash rather than threats. But about Greenwald, in 2010, he contacted me out of the blue to ask me to confirm off the record a story for Salon about Joe Scarborough and Chris Licht getting Marcos Malitzis of the Daily Coast banned from MSNBC. I told him he was right on the money, off the record. Then I said something, or I wrote something that was mildly critical of another story he had written, and Greenwald notified me that if I did not retract the criticism, he would tell my bosses that I had been his source, and they would fire me for talking to him. Schmuck. Glenn, I have become what I used to criticize Greenwald. Today's worst person than the world!
3: Old-school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000.
0: Anyone can win, relationships matter, and
3: only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Saleha Mohsen, and I've covered economic policy for years
4: To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And in nearly all of these, the target for criticism or mocking or eye rolling, or at least one of the targets for criticism or mocking or eye rolling, is me. Not this time. This is about somebody else who has pretty much been throwing punches at me for 15 years and I have never responded, not even to defend myself. And that isn't just entirely a metaphor, literally on one occasion at least, throwing punches at me. So if this seems mean-spirited or vengeful, I'll wear it. Bringing this up is obviously painful for me. That's why I have not done it over the course of 15 years, but I've just had enough. And the thing is, what pushed me over the edge yesterday doesn't even have anything to do with me. And oddly, that is what pushed me over the edge because I'm reading in the Daily Beast and I'm reading in Politico and people are sending me this video of This person and how she talked her husband into getting a vasectomy, and they've gone public with the vasectomy because the two of them are insufferable publicity addicts, and they have turned a vasectomy into a family photo op for their TV shows, and honest to God, I went looking for my name in their vasectomy story, and I was surprised and relieved. I wasn't mentioned, and I was surprised because every other piece of publicity this person has generated for herself for at least the last decade, she has wound up somehow simultaneously mentioning me in it while also complaining that anytime anybody talks about her, they mention me for some reason, and this is so unfair to her, and she's the victim here because she's always the victim here. So here is the headline. On January twenty-second, two 2017... Katie Turr of MSNBC asked me to write her Trump book for her. She was serious. And there are receipts. I'll get back to the book story. But first, since last spring, when her second book came out, I have read story after story that boiled down to one of the headlines I read that was Katie Turr's relationship with Keith Olbermann haunted her. Now, the articles have not been overtly negative, except in a passive aggressive sense, although try out that headline on yourself there and see if you like to be described as haunting someone. But she wrote a book claiming that many experiences, somehow including the time she lived with me, hurt and slowed and limited her career. So all this time I have remained silent about the nearly three years she and I lived together and the eight years after that during which I remained her good and loyal friend. And I have remained silent even though the day she moved into my place in New York, she expected a New York TV station would hire her with no experience and no audition tape. And I have remained silent about how her father, whom she has never stopped trashing, sent her $10,000 worth of cameras and editing equipment to help her get started... And I have remained silent about how I pushed her to not just sit there staring at all that equipment her dad sent, but to use it to go cover stories so she could at least make a tape. And I have remained silent, even though once she didn't like something I told her and she immediately said she was thinking of calling the New York Post gossip page and telling them terrible things about me. And I have remained silent that after I asked her to move out, I paid her rent at a new apartment for a year so she could keep working and living in New York. And I have remained silent even though I paid off her college loans. And when she complained that every time you Googled her name, you also got my name, I loaned her the money to hire a company that altered her Google results. And I have remained silent even though I introduced her to her first agent and to all the people who hired her at News 12 and WPIX and WNBC and NBC News. And I have remained silent even though when she happened to be assigned to Trump's campaign announcement, And Trump knew who she was because when we lived together, it was in one of these Trump buildings here and she got to do the last great actual interview with him. And NBC promptly offered her the chance to be its reporter on his campaign. She called me and said, no, I'm going back to London. I don't like politics. You know that I was the one who told her she was nuts. And this wasn't politics. It was dark, terrible history in progress. And she sighed and said, fine, okay. send me some books about it. And I have remained silent, even though she sent me nearly all of her scripts for her NBC news stories, including her Trump campaign coverage in 2016. And I edited nearly every one of them. And several times I had to completely rewrite them for her. And I have remained silent, even though when her father announced he was transitioning, the friend she called up in hysterics was me. And I have remained silent even though she twice lied to reporters and editors at the New York Times and the Washington Post, telling them she had asked me on their behalf to do interviews with them about her. And I have remained silent even though she lied to them that I had declined the interviews. And I have remained silent even though six days after my emergency appendectomy in 2007, she started punching and slapping me with real intent to do harm because the living room wasn't clean enough in our place. And how exactly do you even try to defend yourself against a woman 125 pounds lighter and a foot shorter than you? So yesterday I'm reading stories about her husband getting a vasectomy, and I'm sitting there waiting to see how she managed to make this one my fault. When Katie's first book came out, she reduced our entire history to a throwaway anecdote defending Kellyanne Conway. The story described me as somebody she had dated briefly in her 20s, After the book came out, and frankly and calmly, I don't know for certain who wrote her first book. I mean, people who can't write suddenly can find their muse. It's possible she wrote it and her other books, too. But after the first book came out that dismissed three years of our shared life as dating briefly in her 20s, I told her she had been awful to me and she replied, I'm sorry, you're right. I'm a terrible person. And it is the last thing we ever discussed. I told her I would not communicate with her again, and I have not, nor have I spoken about her publicly. But I do keep wondering about that book. I still have a text from her from 9.14 p.m. on December 11th, 2016, after she had signed her contract for her book, which became unbelievable. An ironic title. It reads, Do you still want to share your Trump doc with me? Doc here meaning my trove of documents my hundreds of pages of trump notes that i had kept for use in my gq video series and i joked back sure how much and she joked back 10 20 and i emailed it all to her for free that night with only one request don't leave me out of your acknowledgments in the book and guess what she left me out of the acknowledgments in the book too More than a month later, at 2.35 p.m. on Sunday, January 22nd, I had just returned home from Los Angeles and doing Bill Maher's show, and Katie Turr texted me about why they had never invited her on. And then she switched topics to ask, quote, want to write this book? I had taken a nap, so it was not until 5.32 that I replied, what? Well, you're not serious. How would that work? That's when she phoned. She was about to give the advance money back to the publisher, she said. I can't write a book. I'm like 50,000 words short, and it's terrible. I'll give you half the money. I'll give you more than half the money. I pointed out to her that I had written or rewritten dozens of her stories for NBC News and MSNBC, and it was not a question of money. It was a question of what we could get away with. No viewer and maybe only one executive in a million would ever notice that one sentence or one paragraph of script in her two-minute report was actually written by me. First of all, she was the one saying it. Each time I wrote or rewrote in her name for NBC, it was a fireable offense for her, but one that nobody would ever think to look for, even though there is necessarily an email trail 10 miles long. But writing a book for her? about Trump? In my writing style? Not read aloud by her, but in print? I have a pretty distinct writing style, which I don't think I could ever sufficiently hide for more than about 17 words at a stretch. Somebody would notice. Her publisher might cancel it or even sue, or if it got published, NBC might notice it and fire her. It was not just a bad idea for her and very dubious ethically, but it stood an excellent chance of destroying her career and damaging mine, maybe. She said, "Okay, you're right. And she told me she was going to talk it over with her boyfriend, Tony, from CBS that night. And her thought was to give back the advance and cancel the book. And I said, Ghostwriter, maybe. And she said, like who? And I said, I had no idea. I tried to joke her out of these grim prospects by reminding her that at least for the several thousand dollars worth of research I gave her, I had cut the price to no dollars and no cents. And anyway, the next thing I knew, the book was published. There isn't a paragraph of it that reads like the rest of her writing, and I get reduced in it from the guy she lived with for three years who started her career to somebody she dated briefly in her 20s and the dark half of an anecdote defending Kellyanne freaking con job. I will say, I think the things I glossed over before about the New York Times and Washington Post were genuinely deplorable. The thing about the Post first, a Washington Post reporter I'd known for more than a decade named Paul Farhi called me up and asked me to do an interview with him about Katie. And I had my doubts. As I said to Paul, this is at least a little sexist. When I broke through at MSNBC in 1998, nobody called up one of my ex-girlfriends, even the ones in the business. To ask one of them about me, this was an unfair gradient for her or any woman that the first thing a reporter or just somebody Googling her brought up or found was her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, especially me. It is utter misogyny, in fact. On the other hand, there could be a calculation in which it is useful to Katie if I do the interview and amplify the publicity. It is also one of the things I had warned her about literally the day we started dating. And in fact, I reminded her of it the night of the first real date at an Al Gore book event at the Museum of Natural History in New York in the Whale Room. Sure enough, I went from the Whale Room to the Men's Room for a moment while I was out an online gossip clown who had been following us around, went over and pretended he knew her or something. And when I got back, she was bubbling over, telling me she'd met a friend of a friend and told him all about us. And I asked if she had remembered my warning, and she obviously had not. And quote, Katie Turr, new girlfriend of Keith Ulberman, was online before we got home. So when she found there was a way to scrub your Google searches, so every time somebody plugged in her name, they would not also get Keith Olbermann's girlfriend or Keith Olbermann's ex-girlfriend. As I said, I helped her pay to use that service. I get it. The sexism prevails. Maybe it'll go away someday. Maybe it won't. So anyway, when Farhi of the Post called me up, I called Katie. She said she thought it was sexist. And anyway, she wasn't participating with the Post's story on her, and it would really help if I did not do so either. So I declined the interview. And a week later, there in the Washington Post was a big feature on Katie Turr. Because guess what? She did participate with it after all. Complete interview. And worse yet, she told Farhi that she had encouraged me to do the interview with him, so he put it in the paper that I declined to be interviewed so I looked like an idiot, and another thing, I'm not mad, please don't put in the newspaper that I got mad. I called her up and I yelled at her, and she apologized, and she promised she would not do anything like that ever again. And then she promptly did something even worse. A month or two later, the New York Times article comes out. It is a huge profile of her. I think in the magazine or a weekend edition and in it, Mr. Olbermann refused to be interviewed for this story. This is a complete surprise to me. I didn't even recognize the writer's name. I found her contact info and I reached out to her and said, have we ever spoken? And she says, no. And I say emails, texts. And she says, no. And then I say, then when did I refuse to be interviewed for your Katie Turr article for the New York Times? And she says, oh, I asked Katie Turr to ask you. And Katie Turr asked you, and you told Katie Turr you refused to be interviewed. And I said, none of that happened. And there is a long silence on the end of the phone. And then the writer says, let me call the editor to take that part out. And the Times changed the online version of why I didn't do the interview, although they do not note that they changed it. And I later got a note from a Times editor apologizing. She just lied to this reporter from the Times. Just lied. Oh, I'll call him and ask. Oh, he told me he doesn't want to talk to you about me. Just lied. And I just sat there. And I know, very unlike me, I have to say, I was actually too angry to do anything. Anyway, as I mentioned, Katie Turp published another book this year, and a lot of the publicity was about how I haunted her, and she had to go to great lengths to separate her career from mine, even as she keeps mentioning me, and even though she asked me in dead seriousness to write the first book for her. The book, the second one, is mostly about all the impediments and roadblocks she has faced while, what's the word, forging her career, but I will add this last point and then drop the subject, I hope, forever. Forever. For 43 years full-time, I have done this. And counting college, it's, God help me, 47 years. And throughout that stretch, I have tried to acknowledge anybody and everybody who helped me in my career. Even the ones I don't like. Even people who are totally, utterly politically opposed to me. I still think fondly of Stuart Barney from Fox News because he taught me, when I was right up against it one night, how to use a teleprompter. I'll always cherish the memory of working with Stuart Varney. He was such a help to me. Politically, we could have a duel. But of course, as I said, the dynamic is different. I'm a guy. Still, her book is about people who hindered her. And almost none of it is about people who helped her. She is rapidly turning into a kind of professional martyrdom. I saw this in its earliest stages 16 years ago, and she is now going from making it martyrdom into a brand. And yesterday, with turning a vasectomy into a photo op, I just had enough of it. I just ran out of the energy required to cover for her. And I'll say this lastly and sincerely. If your story of your career is all about people you think held you back and not even mostly about the people who bent over backwards to help you along. That is all just very, very sad. I've done all the damage I can do here. Don't put it in the paper that I was mad. Thanks for listening. If you're not following or subscribed or whatever to this podcast, please do so. If you can stop a passerby on the street and get them to as well, thank you. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Ulberman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 700th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. And what, the fourth since his second attempted coup? Arrest him now while we still can. There'll be a new edition tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: I'm Saleh Mosin,
1: And I'm David Gurra. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is